Act One of The Lying Lover or The Lady's Friendship by Richard Steele. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lying Lover or The Lady's Friendship. Heg nosse salus est adolescentulis. Tertullian. The Lying Lover or The Lady's Friendship, a comedy was acted at Drury Lane Theatre on December 2, 1703, and ran for six nights. It was published by Bernard Linteau on January 26, 1704. Wilkes, Buckwit Jr., Mills, Lovemore, Sibber, Latin, Pinkethman, Storm, and Bullock, Charcoal, together with Mrs. Oldfield, Victoria, and Mrs. Rogers, penelope acted in this piece which so far as is known has been revived only once april fourth seventeen forty six since it was originally produced the plot was taken from le menteur by corneille who had borrowed from rui de alarcon's verdad sospecosa steele is of course solely responsible for the scenes in newgate towards the end of the piece samuel foote afterwards made much use of steele's play in his liar to his grace the duke of ormond my lord out of gratitude to the memorable and illustrious patron of my infancy your grace's grandfather i presume to lay this comedy at your feet the design of it is to banish out of conversation all entertainment which does not proceed from simplicity of mind good nature friendship and honour such a purpose will not i hope be unacceptable to so great a lover of mankind as your grace and if your patronage can recommend it to all who love and honour the duke of ormond its reception will be as extensive as the world itself was the irresistible force of this humanity in your temper that has carried you through the various successes of war with the peculiar and undisputed distinction that you have drawn your sword without other motive than a passionate regard for the glory of your country since before you entered into its service you were possessed of its highest honours but could not be contented with the illustrious rank your birth gave you without repeating the glorious actions by which it was acquired but there cannot be less expected from the son of an ossery than to contemn life to adorn it and with munificence affability scorn of gain and passion for glory to be the honour and example to the profession of arms all which engaging qualities your noble family has exerted with so steadfast a loyalty that in the most adverse fortune of our monarchy popularity which in others has been invidious was a security to the crown when lodged in the house of ormond thus your grace entered into the business of the world with so great an expectation that it seemed impossible there could be anything left which might still conduce to the honour of your name but the most memorable advantage your country has gained this century was obtained under your command and providence thought fit to give the wealth of the indies into his hands who only could despise it while with a superior generosity he knows no reward but in opportunities of bestowing the great personage whom you succeed in your honours 
made me feel before i was sensible of the benefit that this glorious bent of mind is hereditary to you i hope therefore you will pardon me that i take the liberty of expressing my veneration for his remains by assuring your grace that i am my lord your grace's most obedient and most devoted humble servant richard steele the preface though it ought to be the care of all governments that public representations should have nothing in them but what is agreeable to the manners laws religion and policy of the place or nation in which they are exhibited yet it is the general complaint of the more learned and virtuous amongst us that the english stage has extremely offended in this kind i thought therefore it would be an honest ambition to attempt a comedy which might be no improper entertainment in a christian commonwealth in order to this the spark of display is introduced with as much agility and life as he brought with him from france and as much humour as i could bestow upon him in england but he used the advantages of a learned education a ready fancy and a liberal fortune without the circumspection and good sense which should always attend the pleasures of a gentleman that is to say a reasonable creature thus he makes false love gets drunk and kills his man but in the fifth act awakes from his debauch with the compunction and remorse which is suitable to a man's finding himself in a jail for the death of his friend without his knowing why the anguish he there expresses and the mutual sorrow between an only child and a tender father in that distress are perhaps an injury to the rules of comedy but i am sure they are a justice to those of morality and passages of such a nature being so frequently applauded on the stage it is high time that we should no longer draw occasions of mirth from those images which the religion of our country tells us we ought to tremble at with horror but her most excellent majesty has taken the stage into her consideration and we may hope by her gracious influence on the muses which will recover from its apostasy and that by being encouraged in the interests of virtue it will strip vice of the gay habit in which it has too long appeared and clothe it in its native dress of shame contempt and dishonour prologue all the commanding powers that all mankind are in a trembling poet's audience joined where such bright galaxies of beauty sit and at their feet assembled men of wit our author therefore owns his deep despair to entertain the learned or the fair yet hopes that both will so much be his friends to pardon what he does for what he intends he aims to make the coming action move on the dread laws of friendship and of love sure then he'll find but very few severe since there's of both so many objects here he offers no gross vices to your sight those too much horror raise for just delight and to detain the attentive knowing ear pleasure must still have something that's severe if then you find our author treads the stage with just regard to a reforming age he hopes he humbly hopes you'll think there's due mercy to him for justice done to you
Dramatis Persona Old Bookwit Read by Todd Young Bookwit The Lying Lover Read by Thomas Peter Love More In Love with Penelope Read by Aaron White Frederick Friend to Love More Read by Major Toast Latine Friend to Young Bookwit Read by Lex Hankins Storm the Highwayman Read by Beth Thomas Charcoal An Alchemist and Coiner Read by Son of the Exiles Simon Servant to Penelope Read by Alan Mapstone Penelope Read by Lian Yao Victoria Friend to Penelope Read by Campbell Shelp Betty, Victoria's Woman, read by Devorah Allen. Lettuce, Penelope's Woman, read by Sonia. Servant, read by Larry Wilson. Maid, read by Nicalia. Constable, read by Larry Wilson. Watchman, read by April 6090. First Prisoner, read by Benny. Second Prisoner, read by Sandra Schmidt. Turnkey, read by Nima. Jailer, read by Peter Strom. Chairman, read by Nima. Mr. Leverage, a professional singer, read by Alan Mapstone. Stage directions, read by phone. Scene, London. The Lying Lover or The Lady's Friendship. Act the First. Scene One st james's park enter young buckwit and latine but have you utterly left oxford for ever sir for ever my father has given me leave to come to town and i don't question but will let my return be in my own choice but jack you know we were talking in maudlin walks last week of the necessity and intrigues of a faithful yet a prating servant we agreed, therefore, to cast lots who should be the other's footman for the present expedition. Fortune, that's always blind, gave me the superiority. <laughs> she shall be called no more so for that one action. And I am, sir, in a literal sense, your very humble servant. Begin, then, the duty of a useful valet, and flatter me egregiously. Has a fellow fitted me? How is my manner? My mean, do I move freely? Have I kicked off the trammels of a gown? Or does not the tail on seem still tucked under my arm where my hat is, with a pert jerk forward and a little hitch in my gait like a scholastic bow? This wig, I fear, looks like a cap. No, faith, it looks like a cap and gown, too, though at the same time you look as if you ne'er had worn either. But my sword, does it hang careless? Do I look bold, negligent, and erect? That is, do I look as if I could kill a man without being out of humour? I horridly mistrust myself. Am I military enough in my air? I fancy people see I understand Greek. Don't I pour a little in my visage? Hand I a down bookish lower, a wise sadness? I don't look gay enough and unthinking, I fancy. I protest you wrong yourself. You look very brisk and very ignorant. Oh, fie! I am afraid you flatter me. 
I don't indeed. I'll be hanged if my tutor would know either of us. But, good master, to what use do you design to put the noble arts and sciences he taught us? The conduct of our lives, the government of our passions, were his daily talk to us, good man. Good man? Why, I'll obey his precepts, but abridge him. For as he used to advise me, I'll contract my thoughts, as I'll tell you, Jack. For the passions, I'll turn them all into that one dear passion love. And when that's the only torch of my heart, I'll give that tortured heart quite away, deny there's any such thing as pain, and turn stoic a shorter way than e'er thy tutor taught thee. This is the new philosophy, you rogue, you. But you would not in earnest be thought wholly illiterate. No, for as when I walk, I'd have you know by my motion I can dance. So when I speak, I'd have you see I read, yet would ordinarily neither cut capers nor talk sentences. But you prate as if I came to town to get an employment. <laughs> no, hang business, hang care, let it live and prosper among the men. I'll ne'er go near the solemn ugly things again. I'll keep company with none but ladies, bright ladies. Oh, London, London, oh, woman, woman, I am come where thou livest, where thou shinest. Hey day, Why, were there no women in Oxford? No, no. Why, do you think a bedmaker's a woman? Yes, and I thought you knew it. No, no, tis no such thing. As he that is not honest or brave is no man, so she that is not witty or fair is no woman. No, no, Jack, to come up to that high name and object of desire, she must be gay and chaste. She must at once attract and banish you. I don't know how to express myself, but a woman, methinks, is a being between us and angels. She has something in her that at the same time gives awe and invitation— I swear to you I was never out in't yet, but I always judged of men as I observed they judged of women. There's nothing shows a man so much as the object of his affections. But what do you stare at so considerately? Faith, sir, I am wondering at you, how tis possible you could be so jaunty a town-spark in a moment, and have so easy a behaviour. I look, methinks, to you— as if I were really your footman. Why, if you're serious in what you say, I owe it wholly to the indulgence of an excellent father, in whose company I was always free and unconstrained. But what's this to ladies, Jack, to ladies? I was going to tell you I had studied them, and know how to make my approaches to him by contemplating their frame, their inmost temper. I don't ground my hopes on the scandalous tales and opinions your wild fellows have of him, fellows that are but mere bodies, machines, which at best can but move gracefully. No, I draw my pretenses from philosophy, from nature. You'll give us by and by a lecture over your mistress? You can dissect her? That I can indeed, and have so accurately observed on woman, that I can know her mind by her eye as well as her doctor shall her health by her pulse. I can read approbation through a glance of disdain, can see when the soul is divided by a sparkling tear that twinkles and betrays the heart. The sparkling tear is the dress and livery of love, of love made up of hope and fear, of joy and grief. 
But what have the wars to do with all this? Why must you needs commence soldier all of a sudden? With not a taking compliment with my college face and phrase to accost a lady. Madam, I bring your ladyship a learned heart, one newly come from the university. If you want definitions, axioms, and arguments, I am an able schoolman. I've read Aristotle twice over, compared his jarring commentators too, examined all the famous peripatetics, know where the scotists and the nominals differ. This certainly must needs enchant a lady. This is too much on the other side. The name of soldier bids you better welcome. Tis valour and feats done in the field a man should be cried up for, nor is it so hard to achieve. The fame of it, you mean? Yes, and that will serve. Tis but looking big, bragging with an easy grace, and confidently mustering up an hundred hard names they understand not. Thunder out, Viroy, Catinan, Boufflet, speak of strange towns and castles, whose barbarous names, the harsher they are to the ear, the rarer and more taking. Still running over lines, trenches, outworks, counterscarps and forts, citadels, mines, countermines, procuring, pioneers, sentinels, patrols, and others, without sense or order— that matters not. The women are amazed. They admire to hear you wrap them out so readily, and many a one that went no farther for it, retailing handsomely some warlike terms, passes for a brave fellow. Don't stand gaping, but live and learn, my lad. I can tell thee ten thousand arts to make thee known and valued in these regions of wit and gallantry. The park, the playhouse. Now you put me in mind where we are— what have we to do here thus early, now there's no company? Oh, sir, I have put on so much of the soldier with my red coat that I came here to observe the ground I am to engage upon. Here must I act, I know, some lover's part, and therefore come to view this pleasant walk. I privately rambled to town last November. Here, I here, I stood and gazed at High Mall, till I forgot it was winter— so many pretty sheaves marched by me. Oh, to see the dear things trip, trip along, and brief so short, nipped with the season. I saw the very air not without force leave their dear lips. Ah, they were intolerably handsome. You'll see, perhaps, such today. But how to come at em? Aye, there's it. How to come at em. Are you generous? I think I am no niggard. You must entertain them high, and bribe all about them. They talk of Ovin and his art of loving. Be liberal, and you outdo his precepts. The art of love, sir, is the art of giving. Be free to women, they'll be free to you. Not every open-headed fellow hits it neither. Some give by lapfuls, and yet ne'er oblige. The manner, you know, of doing a thing is more than the thing itself. Some drop a jewel— which had been refused, if bluntly offered. Some lose at play when they design a present. Right. The skill is to be generous, and seem not to know it of yourself, tis done with so much ease. But a liberal blockhead presents his mistress as he'd give an alms. Leaving such blockheads to their deserved ill-fortune, tell me if thou knowest these ladies— no, not I, sir. They are above an academic, converse many degrees. I've seen ten thousand verses writ in the university on wenches not fit to be either of their handmaids. I never spoke to such a fine thing as either in my whole life. 
<sighs> I'm downright asleep a sudden. I must fall back, and <laughs> glad it is my place to do so. Yet I can get you intelligence, perhaps. I'll to the footman. Do you think he'll tell? He would not to you, perhaps, but to a brother footman. Do but listen at the entrance of the mall at noon, and you'll have all the ladies' characters in town among their lackeys. You know all fame begins from our domestics. That was a wise man's observation. Follow him, and know what you can. Exit Latine. Enter Penelope, Victoria, Simon, and Latisse. A walk round would be too much for us. We'll keep them all. But to our talk, I must confess I have terrors when I think of marrying Lovemore. He is indeed a man of an honest character. He has my good opinion, but love does not always follow that. He is so wise a fellow, always so precisely in the right, so observing and so jealous. He's blameless indeed, but not to be commended. What good he has, has no grace in it. He's one of those who's never highly moved, except to anger. Give me a man that has agreeable faults, rather than offensive virtues. Offensive virtues, madam? Yes, I don't know how. There's a sort of virtue, or prudence, or what you'll call it, that we can but just approve. That does not win us. Lovemore wants that fire, that conversation spirit I would have. They say he's learned as well as discreet. But I'm no judge of that. I'm sure he's no women's scholar. His wisdom he should turn into wit, and his learning into poetry or humour. Well, I'm not so much of your mind. I like a sober passion. A sober passion? You took me up just now when I said an offensive virtue. Bless me! Stumbling almost to a fall, young Buckwit catching her. How much am I indebted to an accident that favours me with an occasion of this small service, for tis to me an happiness beyond expression thus to kiss your hand. The occasion, methinks, is not so obliging, nor the happiness you mention worth that name, sir. Tis true, madam, I owe it all to fortune. Neither your kindness nor my industry had any share in it. Thus am I still as wretched as I was, for this happiness I so much prize had doubtless been refused my want of merit. It has very soon, you see, lost what you valued in it. But I find you and I, sir, have a different sense, for, in my opinion, we enjoy with most pleasure what we attain with least merit. Merit is a claim, and may pretend justly to favour, when without it what's conferred is more unexpected, and therefore more pleasing. You talk very well, madam, of unhappiness you can't possibly be acquainted with, the enjoying without desert. But indeed you have done me a very singular good office in letting me know myself very much qualified for felicity. I swear he's a very pretty fellow, and how readily the thing talks. I begin to pity Lovermore, but I begin to hate Penelope. How he looks, he looks at her. But judge, madam, what the condition of a passionate man must be that can approach the hand only of her he dies for when her heart is inaccessible. Tis very well the heart lies not so easily to be seized as the hand. I find, pray, sir, I don't know what there is in this very old fellow. I'm not angry, though he's downright rude, but I must— But your heart, madam, your heart— 
you seemed, sir, I must confess, to have shown a ready civility when I'd like to fall just now, for which I could not but thank you, and permit you to say what you pleased on that occasion. But your heart, madam, tis a sure sign, sir, you know not me. Or, if you are what indeed you seem, a gentleman, sure you forget yourself, or rather you talk by memory a form or can't which you mistake for something that's gallant. Madam, I very humbly beg your pardon if I pressed too far and too abruptly. I forgot indeed that I broke through decencies, and that though you have been long a familiar to me, I am a stranger to you. Pray, familiar stranger, what can you mean? I never saw you before this instant, nor you me, I believe. Perhaps not, that you know of, madam, for your humility, it seems, makes you so little sensible of your own perfection, that you overlook your conquest, nor have you e'er observed me, though I hover day and night about your lodging, haunt you from place to place, at balls, in the park, at church. I give you all the serenades you've had, yet never till this minute could I find you, and this minute an unfortunate one. But this is always my luck when I'm out of the field. You've travelled then, and seen the wars, sir? Ay, madam, ay, all that I know of the matter is that Louis the Fourteenth mortally hates me. They talk of French gold. What heaps have I refused? Yet to be generous even to an enemy, I must allow that prince has reason for his rancour to me. There has not been a skirmish, siege, or battle since I bore arms. I made not one in. No, nor the least advantage got of the enemy, but I had my share, though perhaps not all my share of the glory. You've seen my name, though you don't know it, often in the Gazette. I never read news. Enter Latine. What tale's he telling now, Tro? You've never heard, I suppose, of such names as Rudemont, Kaiserswert, and Liege nor read of an English gentleman left dead by his precipitancy upon a parapet at Venloo. I was stopped so indeed when the first account came away. Every man has his failings. Rashness is my fault. Don't you remember a certain place called Oxford among your towns, sir? Sure, away! Oh, uh, oh, I beg your pardon, ladies. This fellow knows I was shot in my left arm, and cannot bear the least touch, yet will still be rushing on me. Latine, aside. He has a lie, I think, in every joint. Do you bear any commission, sir? There's an intimate of mine, a general officer, who has often said, Tom, if thou wouldst but stick to any one application, thou mightst be anything. Tis my misfortune, madam, to have a mind too extensive. I began last summer's campaign with the renowned Prince Eugene, but was forced to fly into Holland for a duel with that rough captain of the Hussars, Paul Dyack. They talk of a regiment for me, but those things, besides, it will oblige me to attend it, and then I can't follow honour whereas she's busiest, but must be confined to one nation, when indeed tis rather my way of serving with such of our allies as most want me. But I see you soldiers never enjoy such a thing as rest. You but come home in winter to turn your valour on the ladies. Tis but just a change of your warfare. I had immediately returned to Holland, but your beauties at my arrival here disarmed me, madam, made me a man of peace, or raised a civil war within me, rather. 
you took me prisoner at first sight and to your charms i yielded up in heart till then unconquered martial delights once best and dearest to me vanished before you in a moment and all my thoughts grew bent to please and serve you lovemore's in the walk madam he'll be in a fit rob me of the sudden thus of all my happiness yet ere you quite forsake me authorize my passion license my innocent flames and give me leave to love such charming sweetness he that will love and knows what is to love will ask no leave of any but himself exeunt ladies follow him jack i know as much of him already as needs the footman was in his talking vein the handsomer of the two says he i serve and she lives in the garden what garden covent garden the other lies there too i did not stay to ask her name but i shall meet him again i took particular notice of the livery ne'er trouble thyself to know which is which my heart and my good genius tell me tis she that pretty she i talk to if with respect to your worship's opinion i might presume to be of a contrary one i should think the other the handsomer now what the dumb thing the picture no love is the union of minds and she that engages mine must be very well able to express her own but i suppose some scolding landlady has made you thus enamoured with silence mm, but here are two of the dearest of my old comrades they seem amazed at something by their action enter lovemore and frederick how a collation on the water and music too yes music and a collation last night last night too and that's some treat a very noble one who gave it that i'm yet to learn how happy am i to meet you here when i embrace you thus no happiness can equal mine saluting i thrust myself intrudingly upon you but you'll pardon a man overjoyed to see you where you're always welcome you never can intrude what were you talking of of an entertainment given by some lover as we suppose that circumstance deserves my curiosity pray go on and let me share the story some ladies had the fiddles last night upon the water too methought you said yes twas upon the water water often feeds the flame sometimes and by night too yes last night he chose his time well the lady is handsome in most men's eyes she is and the music good as we hear some banquet followed a sumptuous one they say and neither of you all this while know who gave this treat <laughs> do you laugh at it <laughs> how can i choose to see you thus admire a slight divertisement i gave myself you even i why have you got a mistress here already i should be sorry else i have been in town this month or more though for some reasons i appear but little yet by day in the dark of the evening i peep out and incognito make some visits thus had i spent my time but ill were not latine to young buckwit do you know what you say sir don't lay it on so thick young buckwit to latine 
nay you must be sure to take care to be in the way as soon as they land to show upstairs i beg pardon i was giving my fellows some directions about receiving some women of quality that sup with me to-night in cog but you're my dearest friends and shall hear all frederick to lovemore how luckily your rival discovers himself i took five barges and the fairest kept for my company the other four i filled with music of all sorts and of all sorts the best in the first with fiddles in the next fiorbo lutes and voices flutes and such pastoral instruments the third loud music from the fourth did pierce the air each concert vied by turns which with most melody should charm our ears the fifth the largest of them all was neatly hung not with dull tapestry but with green boughs curiously interlaced to let in air and every branch with jessamines and orange posies decked in this the feast was kept hither with five other ladies i led her whose beauty alone governs my destiny supper was served up straight i will not trouble you with our bill of fare what dishes were best liked what sauces most recommended tis enough i tell you this delicious feast was of six courses twelve dishes to a course latine aside that's indeed enough of all conscience lovemore aside oh the torture of jealousy but sir how seemed the lady to receive this entertainment we must know that oh that was a height on she i warrant she was quite negligent of all this matter you know their way they must not seem to like no i warrant it would not so much as smile to make the fellow vain and believe he had power to move delight in her <laughs> but how then why you must know my humour grew poetic i pulled off my sword knot and with that bound up a coronet of ivy laurel and flowers with that round my temples and a plate of richest fruits in my hand on one knee i presented her with it as a cornucopia and offering from her humble swain of all his harvest to her the series of our genial feast and rural mirth she smiled the ladies clapped their hands and all our music struck sympathetic rapture at my happiness while gentle winds the river air and shore echoed the harmony in notes more soft than they received it methought all nature seemed to die for love like me to all my heart and every pulse beat time oh the pleasures of successful love ha love more ha what hast thou got a good office lately you're afraid i should make some request prithee being so shy i have nothing to ask but of my mistress what's the matter i only attend sir i only attend then i'll go on as soon as we had supped the fireworks played squibs of all sorts were darted through the skies whose spreading fires made a new day a flaming deluge seemed to fall from heaven and with such violence attacked the waves you would have thought the fiery element had left his sphere to ruin his moist enemy their contest done we landed danced till day which hasty soul disturbed us with too soon had it taken our advice or feared my anger he might in that his lap have slept as long as at alcmena's labour he's reported but steering not as we would have prescribed he put a period to our envied mirth 
trust me, you tell us wonders, and with a grace as rare as the feast itself, which all our summer's mirth can't equal. My mistress took me of the sudden. I had not a day's warning. The treat was costly, though, and finely ordered. I was forced to take up with this trifle. He that wants time can't do as he would. Uh, farewell. We shall meet again at more leisure. Number me among your creatures. Oh, jealousy! Thou rack jealousy! Frederick to Lovemore. What reason have you to feel it? The circumstances of the feast nothing agree. Lovemore to Frederick. In time and place they do. The rest is nothing. Exeunt Frederick and Lovemore. May I speak now, sir, without offence? Tis in your choice now to speak or not, but before company you'll spoil all. Do you walk abroad and talk in your sleep, or do you use to tell your dreams for current truth? Dull brain. Why, you beat out mine with your battles, your fireworks, your music, and your feasts. You found an excellent way to go to the wars and yet keep out of danger. Then you feast your mistresses at the cheapest rate that I ever knew. Why do you make em believe you have been here these six weeks? My passion has the more growth, and I the better ground to make love. You'd make one believe fine things. That would but hearken to you, but this lady might soon have found you out. Some acquaintance I have got, however. This is making love, scholar, and at the best rate, too. Uh, to speak truth, I'm hardly come to myself yet. Your great supper lies on my stomach still. <laughs> I defy Pontac to have prepared a better of the sudden. Your enchanted castles, where strangers found strange tables strangely furnished with strange cates, were but six penny ordinaries to the fifth barge. You were an excellent man to write romances, for having feasts and battles at command, your Quixote in a trice would overrun the world. Reveling and skirmishing cost you nothing. Then you vary your scene with so much ease, and shift from court to camp with such facility, I— I love thus to outvie a newsmonger, and as soon as I perceive a fellow thinks a story will surprise, I choke him with a stranger— and stop his mouth with an extemple wonder. Didst thou but know what a pleasure it is to cram their own news down their throats again? Tis fine, but may prove dangerous sport, and may involve us in a peck of troubles. Prithee, Tom, consider that I am of quality to be kicked or caned by this l Hush, hush! Call it not lying. As for my waging war— it is but just I snatch and steal from fortune that fame which she denies me opportunity to deserve. My father has cramped me in a college where all the world has been in action. Then, as to my lying to my mistress, tis but what all the lovers upon earth do. Call it not then by that coarse name a lie. Tis wit, tis fable, allegory, fiction, hyperbole— or be it what you call it, the world's made up almost of nothing else. What are all the grave faces you meet in public? Mere silent lies, dark, solemn fronts, by which they would disguise vain, empty, silly noddles. But after all, to be serious, since I am resolved honestly to love, I don't care how artfully I obtain the woman I pitch upon. Besides, 
did you ever know any of them acknowledge they loved as soon as they loved no they let a man dwell upon his knees whom they languished to receive into their arms they are no fair enemy therefore tis but just that we use all arts the fair to undermine and learn with gallantry to hide design exeunt end of act one